0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the new episode of Science Po's research podcast, where we discuss uh, the research uh, Po faculty work on. Uh, and in this season, we discuss the research on environmental transformation. Today with me, I have Giacomo Parinello, uh, who is a historian. That's the first time we have a historian on our podcast. Uh, Giacomo is an associate professor of the Center for History of Science Po. Giacomo, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Giacomo. The first question to a historian is why do we need to talk to historians when we talk about issues like environmental transformation? Environmental transformation is something that we observe in the present and that will hit us in the future. Why do we need to look into the past?
1: That's a very good question. I think there are at least two important answers that we can give to that question. The first is because if we want to understand what we need to transform, uh, we first need to understand how we got here. And that's a deeply historical question, right? One of the first things we talk about when we talk about environmental transformation or ecological transition is the need to uh, abandon carbon-based uh, energy systems, right? Well, we first need to understand how we got into a carbon-based uh, energy system and economies in the first place. Uh, so that's that's one reason. Another reason is because even climate change is a deeply historical phenomenon, which is linked to uh, the way our societies have evolved over the last couple of centuries. And perhaps I could add even a third one, which is... Uh, a lot of the problems linked to climate change are, of course, environmental problems, but they're also social problems, right? What What is complicated of this whole affair is the way that um, natural phenomenon uh, interact with social processes, and this is what creates vulnerabilities. And the social part of this issue is a deeply historical one. I think we need to understand in its uh, uh, construction through time. This is what will equip us to get a better sense of how to Uh, well to change
0: so in a sense uh, environmental history is not just paleontology or geology it's it's a history of society which got us here as long as we believe in the man-made climate change which we do Uh, your own research is mostly focused on the issues of water you look into the rivers and water shortages today Uh, We are in the beginning of the summer of 2023, so we still don't know how big the problem will be this year. Last summer was very hot and we saw that uh, water uh, water shortages uh, were so impactful that even this country, France, that normally doesn't depend on um, various sources of energy that are linked to climate change. It mostly uses nuclear energy, suddenly discovered that water matters for production of nuclear energy because if rivers are shallow and warm, you cannot use water to cool nuclear reactors. So even here in Paris, which usually felt safe, and uh, uh, this is the country which usually tells other countries do like us and you will not be dependent on on, uh, hydrocarbons and fossil fuels, even this country suddenly discovered it's a first order issue. Uh, this is of course a much bigger issue for developing world here in western europe we open a tap water comes out but as a recent un world water development report 2023 suggested we have about 2 or 3 billion of people around the world who actually suffer from real world or, or water shortages and in that sense it's it's a top issue for uh, environmental for scholars of environment and environmental historians like you so you worked on the po river basin mm-hmm. w- uh, your book is on this subject what do we learn from your book
1: i think uh, what makes the, the the po river and so the, the book particularly interesting is the way the dependence on water that you were just mentioning, right, about nuclear energy, for instance, in France, we could have mentioned also agriculture, which is suffering a lot of, of shortages. So this kind of dependence of even advanced economies on, on a basic resource like water really comes to the fore in the case of the of the Po Valley, which is a very wealthy region, the wealthiest of Italy, and one of the wealthiest of, of Europe, right, in which uh, industrialization of Italy basically originated, in which there is still a very powerful agricultural sector. Most of urbanization is there. And so this this very system depends uh, deeply on water. And this is also a place where uh, we are observing the the issue of water scarcity in a very dramatic way. Uh, over the last 20 years, a series of successive drought have impacted the Po watershed. And with that, also the economy of, of the Po Valley. So we see both uh, how a wealthy economy uh, uh, can be so dependent on water in basically virtually every sector, uh, right, from agriculture to energy production, and also how much this uh, is now impacted by uh, water scarcity.
0: But in a sense, your book ends 20 years ago. So what's happened after 2003 is really a subject that we know as humans, but you as a scholar, you've looked uh, further away in time. What do we learn from the history before 2003
1: that's that's a very good point i uh i think that if we really want to understand the water crisis like the one that is manifesting in the po valley the one that is manifesting in france we need to combine at least two things the first one of course is climate change right the fact that climate change is having a major impact on the h2o cycle i sometimes like to use this formula the messing with the c uh, o2 cycle is also messing with the H2O cycle, these two big uh, cycles of, of the Earth. So there is that, of course, right? There is less water, especially when most needed during the summer. And that's part of the explanation. But the other part is also that we need a lot of water, that we use a lot of water, especially advanced economies uh, use a lot of water. Now, if we want to understand why we use a lot of water and how come that we are so dependent on water and that our economies are so built on water use, this is when we need history. Because this dependence, at least in the case of the Po Valley, but I would argue that it's also the case elsewhere, has been built over at least two centuries of history, Mm. of economic history and political history.
0: So when we talk about the politics of water and the governance of water, what has been uh, the major development, say, in northern Italy, in the Po Valley? How did people address this issue when they understood how dependent they are on uh, Po rivers? You mean in the recent period? Yeah.
1: the last 20 years? Well, one of the first things that has been done has been to try and look at the river not so much as a river but as a basin, that is the entire uh, region which is drained by the river, and thus think of how it is possible to plan the use of water at this scale, which means to coordinate a lot of different economic and political interests. The problem is that this kind of coordination Uh, has uh, been very complicated to implement because the juridical tool, the political tool are not equipped to really enforce, for instance, different ways of sharing water. So there is a lot to do. What has been done has been a recognition of the scale at which the challenge should be tackled. Uh, What is still to be done is to really put in place the tools to really tackle that challenge and that challenge at that scale.
0: I know that historians usually refrain from giving solutions and discussing these tools, but I guess uh, you cannot avoid this question right now. You've uh, studied this region in particular and generally the water governance um, in the whole world. Uh, uh, What are the tools that policymakers have to address this crisis?
1: This is really a very difficult question to me. I, I don't like very much to enter into the policy making thing, but what I think history can contribute to this conversation is really, I think, uh, a way of, first of all, underst- understanding the systemic scale of the issue. So it's not just a matter of water use. Through water use, it really touches the very way in which entire economic sectors are, are built. Think about agriculture. Right. Agriculture in the Po Valley, for instance, depends deeply on, on irrigation. So whenever you're thinking of dealing with water issue, you also have to keep in mind that behind the water issue question, there is the entire issue of the uh, agricultural productions uh, uh, question. So you cannot find sectorial solution that works only for water if you don't address, for instance, what kind of crops are being cultivated, right? And how you regulate the, the the kind of crops that are cultivated that are cultivated will have in turn an impact on on uh, on water, and this question of systemic interdependencies goes even beyond that. So it is also about linking, uh, for instance, agriculture and energy production and think the two together. So this is, would certainly be one of the kind of a basic contribution that someone like a historian uh, could could provide to to this debate. Um, And perhaps another important thing, which is, I think, particularly salient in most European countries is the question of water rights, which are very deeply entrenched uh, in the past and that assign to a lot of different users a certain amount of water that they are entitled by law to use. Now, the problem is that those quantities do no longer correspond to, uh, well, the water that is actually available, especially now with climate change. So I think that law... Water rights in particular is one crucial area in which one should intervene. It's very difficult though, a lot of interest.
0: Yeah, it's uh, very visible for somebody coming from France to Italy to see how residents of Italian uh, cities actually come to public free fountains Mm -hmm. and uh, use uh, various various, uh, um, uh, vessels to collect free water Mm -hmm. because uh, water is actually costly. Uh, As an economist, I'm very happy to see that uh, the government does attach Mm. a price to Mm. excessive use of water, but it is also interesting to see how expensive it is so people cannot afford to pay for water and use uh, free water available in public squares. This, is, I think, is a highly historical issue because these fountains emerged much earlier in in Italian history. And so this water rights discussion is probably the same discussion we had 100 years ago and maybe Mm. 800 years ago.
1: I, th- I think I-, I want just to uh, specify the one important point in this conversation about water use and water rights. When we think of the scale of river systems, so river basin, like the Po or mm-hmm. the Seine or the Rhone mm-hmm. or uh, the Colorado River, whatever, mm-hmm. urban uses, domestic uses, they are a tiny fraction. So the re- what really matters in terms of big volumes of water is first and foremost, agriculture. Irrigation is like big, big, big time The most important water use also because the water that goes into the fields does not come back into the river. Then you have energy producers, uh, which to a certain extent are less impactful because they they give back water into the river. We should discuss what kind of water then they give back. That's another matter. But in terms of quantity. Right. So I think this water rights conversation, even in its historical dimension, needs to first focus on agriculture and energy. And and this is, by the way, what I what I do in my book. Um, And indeed, the conversation has been similar uh, in in the past. with perhaps the, the the one important difference that is that the way the water rights have been allocated through time, for instance, in the case of the Po Valley, which has a very deep history of water rights allocation for irrigation, um, has been done by assuming a hydrology which was stable. Mm-hmm. The idea was that through statistics and collection of data, we could get to kind of an average flow, right? And then based on this average flow, we could attribute water rights. So there were a lot of fights, of course. There were a lot of competition, a lot of economic discussion, whether it was worthwhile to invest, for instance, in canals, and whether there was really a return on that investment or not. But on this background, on this background idea of stability, of of the system. Now, what, what it's in crisis now is precisely this idea of stability, and I think this is the kind of mind leap we need to we need to make, and which is starting to be made. If you if you talk to regulators, I spend some times interviewing people of watershed agency. I sit in a in a in a scientific comedy of the of the watershed agency here for the Rhone. They're very well aware of this now the problem is how do we <laughs> <laughs> make the message reach also those that are most directly concerned
0: so what you are saying is uh, this hydrology was more or less stable until 2003 but in the recent decades it's it's changing and it's changing at uh, the accelerating rate and um, what are what are the main uh, causes of this acceleration climate change carbon uh, climate uh, change is the global warming
1: yeah climate change is the big 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 uh reason uh the way uh, as i was saying before with this shorthand formula co2 is changing h2o uh cycle Uh, and the way in which it does that the most visible one is uh the fact that there is less snow much less snow for shorter periods. Now, our rivers, especially in the summer season, they depend on how much snow there has been in the winter. Now, since our winters are warmer and drier, there is just less snow that accumulates in the mountains. And so when when summer, uh, spring comes and then summer... There's just less water that that, that flows into the river. So that's the most visible way in which climate change is impacting supply. And then there is the question of glaciers, which is even more worrisome, right? A lot of rivers in Europe, they depend on the glaciers of the Alps, the Rhône, the Po, the Rhine, the Danube. And glaciers are just disappearing. They're melting. On a short uh, term, melting glaciers feeds rivers so we can think that it's oh actually there is (laughs) water but the problem is that when the glacier disappears the smaller river that was fed by the glacier disappears as well and so that will generate a structural shortage and this is also linked to climate change
0: yeah this is highly visible if you go to the alps sometimes they take tourists to show you the glacier where it It was 100 years ago, 50 years ago, and this is indeed very moving. You see the tragedy uh, right in front of your eyes. What happens uh, regarding uh, rivers in uh, flatter parts of the world? If you look at countries which don't have mountains, snow, and glaciers, is there this problem as well, or they're fine?
1: No, no, the problems are, are everywhere. Well, first, uh, the vast majority of rivers in the world, they still depend on glaciers. So we mm-hmm. should not forget that. <laughs> Even places where glaciers are very far away, like India mm-hmm. or coastal China, uh, all, the, all the big river system of Asia, they depend on the water towers of the Himalayas, mm-hmm. right? And... Uh, there is a matter of also shrinking glaciers. Likewise, for the big rivers of uh, Latin America, then depends on the on the Andean uh, mountain range. Likewise, for the United States with the, with the Rockies, uh, there are though some rivers, for instance, in Africa, like the Nile, that do not depend on uh, on. Uh, on glaciers or on snow, but they do depend on specific uh, uh, weather and climate pattern. The The case of the Nile is classic. The Nile is fed, the famous flood of the Nile, is fed by the monsoon, the same monsoon that then reaches India. And so one of the big concerns that climate scientists have is whether the monsoon will hold, will remain as reliable as it has been. And if the monsoon stops being reliable, big problems for the Nile and for all the big dams that exist in the Nile and from which agriculture and energy production depends in a big uh, uh, chunk of of Africa.
0: So like in other parts of environmental uh, conundrum here, we are talking not about the trend of diminishing uh, quantity of water, but more like a great instability, much higher volatility. If monsoon becomes uh, unstable, uh, we will still have water, but we will have a great volatility of volume of w- w- water in the Nile. This
1: this is a very important pr- uh, point, which I think applies also to uh, Western countries. There is a, a lot less water in certain periods of the year, but there are also uh, episodes of concentrated precipitation. We saw that in California not long ago, we saw that in, in Italy. So it's not just about less water, but it's also precisely about um, Fluctuating cycles of scarcity and flood, flood basically. <laughs> yeah. Either not enough or too much. So really what makes this complicated also for managers is that it's really unpredictable. It's, it's the instability that, that generates problem for, for a, 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 a water management system which has been built on stability. and And predictability
0: so so from what you're saying even if we think that we are within one and a half or two degrees scenario it looks like we'll have much more volatility of water supply in the coming decades and the next hundred years, so how do we adapt to this? what kind of adaptations we can we can uh, pursue
1: well we, we have it already now I think I mean we, we are already it's not just a matter of the future we are already experiencing higher volatility we are experiencing su- uh, winters with little snow we are experiencing uh, perennial rivers uh, running almost dry I mean the poor river is a perennial river and it has almost no water. Um, what to do? I mean, uh, I wish I had a solution for, <laughs> mm-hmm. for, for everybody. But the point is that we certainly need to plan uh, the sectors that really depend most in, uh, intensively on, on, on water, starting with agriculture again, uh, for uh, less intensive water use. It's really about thinking about how we can still produce enough food uh, we're using less water, which means probably probably renouncing to crops that are particularly thirsty and replacing them with crops that are less thirsty or that can uh, support better volatility or dryness. Uh, for instance, a lot of maize is cultivated, corn, right? Corn is a very thirsty kind of crops that demands irrigation in dry summers, otherwise it fails. There are cereals that are less demanding in, in, like. in water, sorghum, for instance, millet, uh, Quinoa, a lot, of, a lot of them that, by the way, have been historically cultivated in drier parts of the mm-hmm. world. Perhaps we need to, I know that's n- not something that agricultures like to hear, but we might have also to shrink the livestock uh, farming, which is also very consuming in maize and in water. So there are a lot of adjustments. They will be painful. And so they need to be regulated.
0: Yeah, livestock uh, is challenged on other grounds as well because it also contributes to um, uh, emission emissions. But uh, uh, on the other on the other hand, the economists usually get criticized for proposing economic solutions so if you think about the way to uh, accelerate the transition you're talking about there are two ways one is to charge for water which is highly unpopular act as i mentioned the other thing is actually to introduce a water tax like we are talking about carbon tax mm. For um, for energy uh, or for whatever production technologies which are carbon intensive, we can also think about a water tax, where uh, products that are produced with uh, excessive water usage would just be taxed at a higher rate. We also have, as you know, sugar tax when we uh, impose taxes on sugary drinks because they will cost us more in terms of healthcare costs. So, is that something that um, non-economists uh, are more open to, or
1: well? There are some forms of, uh, let's say, financial burdens on water use. Not everywhere the same, but if you think here in France, water agencies, they fund themselves to a larger extent on some equivalent of taxes. They're not called like that, but water users, they have to pay uh, some amount of money depending on the amount of water they use and how they use it. So whether they give it back, whether it's polluted after they give it back and so on and so forth. So this is certainly something that already exists and then can probably continue, and is going to be also reformed here in France, and that could be implemented elsewhere. So I am personally not s- totally opposed to that, uh, as long as it, uh, uh, as it as as long as it reaches the right kind of users. So mm-hmm. I'm not very much in favor of rising use for domestic user uh, costs for domestic users because those are not those who matter and and they they actually can exacerbate inequalities. But I also think that economic solution won't be enough, in my opinion. I think we really need government. I'm a big believer in government intervention. We have done so in the past in historic moment in the in the case of european rivers for instance after world war 1 when it was necessary to increase hydroelectric production there have been serious efforts at economic planning from government in terms of water resource use on a large scale and i do think we need something like that to ensure also that things are done quickly and as uh, justly as possible, I think. Not that governments are always a Mm -hmm. (laughs) guarantee of justice, of course.
0: Justice, efficiency, and speed. (laughs) Uh, uh, So to defend economies, economies are not against government. It's just uh, what I was uh, having in mind was uh, government imposing taxes rather than investing itself. I fully agree that uh, taxes are not enough, and government should invest sometimes, should ban certain activities sometimes, uh, should... uh, also, increase transparency, um, providing data on who is using most water, what is so costly for us as a global society, as a humankind, in terms of uh, water usage. But what worries me, and this is what you've repeated several times, we are in crisis in terms of water shortages and water use. So the current uh, solutions, current policies are not enough. And so the question is uh, what we do to reform the agricultural users and energy users of water. Do we tax more? Do we increase price for industrial water users? Uh, do we build, uh, do we support, uh, subsidize other sources of energy or do we subsidize other stocks, uh, crops? Uh, so what what should be done?
1: I, I, I don't know. I think, for instance, though, uh, as I was mentioning before, one uh, big non-directly economic mm-hmm. uh, leverage that exists is the water rights, the water allocation. Mm-hmm. I mean, those is really big time, uh, uh, a big piece of, of the of the puzzle, right? And this is not um, uh, about cost of water; it's really about how much juridically uh, a mm-hmm. certain individual is entitled to use. Uh, and those are no longer in, in uh, correspondence with the water that is available. And I do think that here governments have uh, room to intervene uh, and to say, well, guys, we need to revise water rights. Mm-hmm. Water rights that have been assigned in the early 19th century, probably they're no longer, uh, you know, uh, valid today. So we need to map, we need to revise, we need to redistribute uh, uh water rights according to the new uh, hydrological data that we have and to the uncertainty that we expect for the future. So this is something that could be done that could have a big impact on scaling down quite uh, drastically and and rapidly, I think, uh, the the water use. Uh, Of course, then this problem is how uh, and who will control whether this is, but that's uh, whether this is done, but that's another.
0: Well, I think uh, right now, right now the situation is much better relative to 100 years ago. To 100 years ago, we have. Uh, much more information on pretty much everything, Mm -hmm. much more transparency of water uses. In particular, Mm -hmm. we have satellite imagery, if need be. Uh, We can see which crops are grown anywhere, everywhere. So all of that is becoming much more transparent. The political aspect of what you're suggesting is, of course, a different matter. Uh, If I take away your water rights or I reduce the amount of water you can consume, you will be extremely unhappy. Given how essential water is, for what you do. And so the question is uh, uh, how, how to resolve this puzzle. Can we um, just say today you can do what you want, but uh, next year the situation will change or in five years situation will change or in 10 years situation will change. The problem is that we want to reduce the political backlash from these reforms. Uh, And in that sense, it would be great if we tell the farmers, you can use the water, but your kids will have to get another set of water rights. The problem is that maybe there will be no kids. The problem is that we probably need to act right now. So what is the time horizon for these reforms? What do you think?
1: Well, one thing I would like to point out, though, is that some things are already being done, Mm -hmm. especially in in context of crisis. In 2003, when the very first big crisis with which my book starts and ends uh, happened, uh, it was implemented a form of water flow governance at the scale of the river basin. Mm -hmm. That is that the prime minister, uh, through its agency, the Civil Protection Department, organized a table... On which all the big water users of the watershed sat uh, and they came to an agreement on reducing each uh, of them uh, their share of water use uh, according to indications that came from the watershed agency which was monitoring the drought from a hydrological perspective and told them you need to release more water from that uh, reservoir Uh, you need to use less water in that canal Uh, and of course I mean that was not something that they, they would have done spontaneously without the crisis, but it also showed uh, that in a context of crisis, things that might seem impossible uh, in in other moments can become uh, can become possible. I do think the time horizon is it's now. <laughs> I mean, we really in the next couple of years. Uh, to the end of the decades, I think a lot of things will change whether we like it or not. So they will change. It's like for climate, right? They they will change. There will be more shortage of water, more crops will be lost. So I think this will also in a sense dictate uh, the urgency to the political agenda. So,
0: so just, uh, just to talk about a very, very recent history, uh, for, uh, for those of us who don't spend every summer in northern Italy, which are unfortunate people, but uh, I don't. Uh, so uh, how many sh- crises like this we had in the last uh, 20 years?
1: Um, it depends how you consider intensity, but let's say roughly every two years. Right. Okay. Roughly every two years. The worst one was last summer. Last summer was really very bad. You consider that I think between 30 and 40% of the harvest of maize was lost, 40% of the harvest of rice was lost, and uh, milk production was lost, which means parmigiano, Mm -hmm. which a lot of people consume without perhaps connecting it to water. But it actually depends as well on water availability uh, for animals and their uh, food. So, yeah, at least once every two years is becoming dramatically regular
0: so what you're saying is uh, the time for action is now we are actually in a very very urgent situation yes. so if you were a prime minister this is something that I usually end my podcast with what would you do you would also call on everybody and, uh, and ask them to reduce water consumption and what you're saying is, we don't need to call every citizen. You need to call large industrial and agricultural users. And uh, you have, since we have more data than even 20 years ago, I guess this conversation would become even more urgent. And. Uh, uh, probably more constructive. Do you think uh, that is something that we should do, or we should
1: certainly we should put all big water users around the table, mm-hmm. with hydrologists, <laughs> and climatologists, <laughs> <laughs> and agronomists, uh, to have a serious conversation on of of, uh, of what is uh, physically possible and what is not. Because to me, a lot of the of this issue is about what is physically possible or not, and then find a way to yes to decide how to share scarcity which is the situation in which we we are you're but saying I, you're um,
0: saying the cri- crisis creates awareness so after you lose uh, milk production or or uh, corn production that makes people aware but if the crisis happens every couple of years a couple of years everybody's already aware so that should be reasonably easy to do, given given that the fact that people understand that this is a scarce resource, mm. it is becoming more and more scarce, so it's time to act now. So I think, I think that should be uh, doable. I think.
1: This is why I think uh, things are changing anyway. Mm-hmm. Th- the question is uh, how governed this transformation will be or not, because I think some actions probably are already being taken without us realizing. I I suppose that perhaps some farmers are already doing something in their fields. They're already making different choices in what they plant. They're already acting in different ways. Now, the question is whether this transformation will be accompanied, supported, directed, governed or not. This is, to me, is, is the big question. But I think finding an agreement on the fact that a change is necessary at this time is not very complicated. What is being complicated, what will be complicated, is to uh, decide exactly what to do and how to share the scarce resource. This is what makes the, the governance question, to me, very burning one, very difficult one to answer.
0: Yes thank you very much uh, Giacomo this is actually a question for a political scientist rather than for a historian uh, how to how to to decide on on the allocation of a scarce resource and indeed that's what we observed in Paris in 2015 where all countries came together and uh, identified national national contributions to fighting climate change and uh, this is something that can be done also on on sharing this scarce resource of uh, water which uh, we will need to do we do observe change changing crops in all countries. Farmers understand that, Uh, but uh, what you've just said is extremely important. Now, when we have more research and more data, uh, we can do it in a better informed way, in more optimal and rational way. And also with the new data, we can also monitor whether people who commit to something implement what they're doing. Thank you very much, Giacomo. It was great having you on podcast. This is all for today by stay tuned for more conversations on research on environmental transformation. Thank you. Thank you so much.